Please be seated. So King David is among the most well-known and revered people in all of Scripture. For those of Jewish faith, he is right up there with Jesus. He's especially famous, of course, for his duel with the Philistine giant Goliath, who he toppled with nothing but a slingshot. But this is a lesser-known text that we're about to hear, and it continues the story of that legendary battle. First, before we get to that, though, a little bit of background so we're all caught up. David is the youngest of eight brothers, the son of a poor sheep farmer, and the prophet Nathan uh, discovers him and ordains him to become the next king of Israel. David is conscripted into royal service as the king's personal minstrel and armor bearer, where he encounters Goliath on the battlefield. And defeating him, uh, David becomes a hero of Israel. The king, Saul, recognizes his, his strength and his potential, and he promotes David, uh, who swiftly rises through the ranks of the military. Now, Saul grows leery of him as the people begin to uh, chant a popular slogan. Saul has killed his thousands, they cry out. David, his tens of thousands. And convinced that David will try to stage a coup against him, Saul strikes first and tries to have David killed. And this is where we find him now, barely escaping with his life and a few loyal men, a desperate fugitive in need of assistance. And it's here in the village of Nob that David encounters Goliath again, in a sense. The encounter will change him, and not for the better. A reading from the book of Samuel. David came to Nob to the priest Ahimelech. Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you here alone and no one with you? David said to the priest, Alemetek, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, No one must know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what have you at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you have here. The priest answered David, I have no ordinary bread at hand, only holy bread, provided that the young men have kept themselves from women. David said to Ahimelech, Is there no spear or sword here with you? I did not bring my sword or my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. The priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Ella, is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none here except that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts serve to glorify you 
And may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You meet the most interesting people in the middle of the night, don't you? It was three o'clock in the morning when she met Joseph. He was massaging his neck and stretching his legs outside of the men's room, his cape blowing gently in the breeze of the air conditioning. On one hand, he wore a large golden gauntlet encrusted with plastic jewels and gemstones. He pulled off his mask and grinned. Stretch often, use the bathroom during every break, and make sure you get enough to eat, Joseph advised her. It's the only way to keep going. Julia, a young writer living in New York, was not in the habit of speaking to strange men outside of restrooms in the small hours of the night, least of all men who wore masks and capes. But she was covering a local movie marathon, a 31-hour gauntlet of Marvel superhero movies. Iron Man, Captain America, The Avengers, all of this culminating in the premiere of the long-awaited sequel, Avengers Infinity War. She had little to say about the films themselves, but focused her article instead on the people that she met in the theater. College students, diehard superhero fans, movie marathoners who had done this sort of thing plenty of times before. It was a younger crowd by and large, but otherwise pretty diverse. Men and women from all walks of life, a few of them in costume, all of them utterly enchanted by the stories that played out on the screen. They cheered wildly when Robert Downey Jr. appeared as Iron Man and erupted in shouting and applause at the mention of esoteric comic book terminology Things like vibranium and infinity stones, all of it a part of their common, nerdy language. It speaks volumes, though, about the kind of power these films have over their audience. That anyone would be willing to endure such a grueling experiment is frankly beyond me. I mean, I've, I've seen two or three of these uh, Marvel movies, you know, and they were great. You know, don't get me wrong, but 31 hours. I don't think even Robert Downey Jr. could stand to look at himself for that long <laughs> up on the screen. But, you know, you've got to hand it to Marvel Studios. They, they've made 20 blockbuster movies since 2008. And they've got a cinematic roadmap extending uh, several years into the future. This company is basically printing money at this point because they've tapped into something. They've struck a vital nerve, a cultural need. People need to have heroes. Marvel and DC, the comic book uh, companies that created Superman and Captain America and most of the superheroes we know today, they didn't invent these kinds of stories, obviously. Early Navajo petroglyphs found in Arizona depict ancient monster slayers who drove evil forces from the land. Biblical scriptures, composed as early as the sixth century before the birth of Christ, are full of valiant warriors, cunning misfits, and brave mothers who stood against tyranny. In time, we see the rise of Arthurian legends, spaghetti western cowboys, comic book heroes, and 
Of course, Saturday morning cartoons. I don't think that's even a thing anymore, Saturday morning cartoons, but it was in the 80s when I was growing up, and those cartoons were hugely influential to me as a boy. I was especially fond of this show called Turbo Teen. I don't know if anyone remembers this. It was a, it was a show about a teenager who uh, accidentally drove his red sports car into a secret government laboratory, and uh, he crashes the car into a particle accelerator, as one is wont to do, and uh, his molecules get all mixed up with the car. Henceforth, uh, whenever his body temperature reaches 100 degrees, he transforms into an 85 Chevy Camaro. It's a brilliant concept. And I remember one episode in particular where Turbotine broke out of a Mexican jail. Uh, I don't know why he was there in the first place, but he broke out when his friends smuggled a really spicy taco through the bars of his cell. Brilliant stuff. I, uh, I was not the only kid, of course, inspired by these kinds of things. Children of every generation weaned on heroic tales, decided that they wanted to be soldiers or doctors or police officers when they grew up. For my part, I only ever wanted to be a red sports car. <laughs> and if I ever seem cynical or bitter, it's because I have a dream that can never come true. But even if we can't be superheroes, we are still the hero of our own story. The characters we revere, they're, they're archetypes, you know, uh, iconic symbols that express something fundamental in the human psyche, something in the human heart. They reflect something of us, and we see ourselves in these heroic stories. For much of the 20th century, Joseph Campbell was regarded as the world's premier mythologist, uh, storyteller, and expert in comparative religion. And in his seminal work, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which was published in 1949, Campbell made a bold claim. Having studied countless legends and stories of heroes from cultures all over the world and throughout history, he came to this conclusion that most of them adhered to a familiar pattern, that they were all basically the same. It doesn't matter if these stories emerged in ancient Israel, medieval Europe, or feudal Japan. They all followed the same pattern. The hero's journey, as it came to be called, is predictable. The protagonist uh, is called to adventure, often accompanied by an older mentor and other friends who will join her on the quest. The hero is given a weapon, maybe a, a sword or a magic wand, and she crosses the threshold into the unknown. She travels to distant lands and encounters uh, enemies and challenges along the way, faces and overcomes a series of trials. She descends into a kind of underworld representative of the subconscious where she uh, faces her greatest enemy, often a reflection of herself and her own inner demons. And finally, having conquered death, the hero is resurrected and voyages home, older and wiser, returning with treasure or wisdom for her community, what Joseph Campbell called returning 
with the elixir. Now this should all sound pretty familiar. It's basically the plot of Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, The Wizard of Oz, the entire canon of Arthurian literature, and just about every other heroic saga ever depicted in writing or on film. As it happens, it's also the plot of the Gospels. Jesus uh, follows the hero's journey very closely. He's called uh, by God to save humankind from itself. He's mentored by John the Baptist, sets out on a journey with 12 disciples. Uh, he doesn't have a, a sword, but he's got power. He's got immense power. And he uses this to overcome various trials and confrontations with evil. He challenges the greatest authority in the land. He's crucified. He descends into the underworld. And he's resurrected, conquering death and returning home with the good news and the Holy Spirit. Now, the universal quality of these hero stories should come as no surprise because they are a metaphor for our own lives. Each and every one of us experience these things to a certain degree as we come of age and set out into an unknown world, facing challenges, growing stronger and wiser along the way. These stories remind us that we are heroes too. We are the heroes of our own story. But there's an important twist here, something that threatens to undermine the plot. You see, villains are the hero of their own story, too. At every stage of Campbell's archetypal journey, there is a risk and a danger of corruption, a risk of the hero becoming a villain. I want to look at the biblical saga of King David here, which is probably the most textured and nuanced story in the Bible. It has layers of meaning and emotionally complex characters with questionable motives. Now, David himself is a controversial figure, depending on who you ask. A lot of people of faith uh, celebrate David as Israel's greatest king, Jesus' biological ancestor and the bravest of heroes who ever lived. Other people, reading between the lines of the text, see something very different. They see a perpetrator of adultery, extortion, treason, and murder. And good or bad, most of these things are probably true. David's story begins innocently enough. In the early chapters, he follows the hero's journey pretty closely. He's called to adventure by the king, Saul, conscripted into royal service. He's mentored by the prophet Nathan, who believes that he'll become the next king of Israel one day. And he performs a heroic deed when he defeats Goliath. But after bringing him down with the slingshot, it should be noted that David hefts Goliath's massive sword and uses it to cut off the giant's head. That bit is often skipped over in Sunday school. And it's the first time that we get a glimpse of the violence that David is capable of. 
Now in time, uh, as I said before, King Saul grows paranoid. He thinks that David's going to try to kill him too at some point and usurp his throne. So one night, after Saul calls David up to his chambers to uh, play some music for him, Saul tries to impale the younger man with a spear. And David, with a few of his comrades, manages to escape from the palace, goes on the lamb. And it's here that David encounters Goliath's blade for a second time here in the village of Nob. Having fled from Saul in a hurry, David's got nothing but the shirt on his back, no food, no weapons. So he beseeches this priest, Ahimelech, for supplies. And asking if there's any weapons there, Ahimelech tells him that there is only the sword of Goliath kept for posterity after their legendary duel. There is none like it. David proclaims, as if seduced by the sword and its bloodlust. Give it to me. Now this is a turning point in the story. Because from that moment on, David begins to veer off of the heroic path. His decisions become more Machiavellian, more ruthless. In a sense, he becomes Goliath. He establishes himself as the leader of a mercenary band in the wilderness, running a protection racket amongst the smaller towns and villages. Later, he defects to the Philistine army, fighting on their behalf in the war, killing his own people. And when Saul is killed in battle with those same Philistines, David returns home to claim the throne, execute his political adversaries, and sleep with another man's wife. It all reminds me of a greeting card I I saw recently. It said, I'd like to lend you my moral support, but I have questionable morals. (laughs) Even with all of that being said, though, it has has to be said that David was a, a good king. He led with strength. He united a nation. So as you can imagine, the biblical authors who put him on a pedestal, take great pains to justify his more questionable behavior and to ensure that David is nowhere nearby when his detractors are conveniently murdered. Even this battle where King Saul is killed, there's this really detailed explanation in the Bible about why Jesus, I'm sorry, why David was not on the battlefield that day. The message is clear. Regardless of what he was forced to do along the way, David is a hero. But we're always the hero of our own story. And if we aren't careful, we can become the villain in someone else's. Back in uh, 2004, a man named Marvin Hemeyer turned to villainy. Before that faithful day on June 2nd of that year, he'd been a kind, mild-mannered guy Uh, by all accounts, but after a long and contentious dispute with the local zoning board, he finally lost it, as one is wont to do after a contentious battle with the zoning board. Marvin built a modified Komatsu D-355 bulldozer and armored it with steel and concrete, some of it as much as a foot thick. He mounted a 50 caliber semi-automatic rifle on the Bach, smashed through the wall, of his garage and proceeded to destroy 
the small town in which he lived. Now, I don't think Marvin killed anyone that day. That was not actually his intent. Uh, but he plowed through the concrete plant, smashed through the town hall and the local newspaper building. He rolled over a judge's house and destroyed a hardware store owned by some guy he didn't like very much. He also demolished seven other buildings, racking up a $7 million bill in damages. After a few hours, he got his appropriately named killdozer, as it came to be remembered, stuck in the wreckage of someone's house. And that was the end of the terror. It took authorities 12 hours to cut their way inside of the tank. Now Marvin was the hero of his own story. And I imagine a lot of folks who have crossed paths with the zoning board would also think he's a hero. But he's the villain in the story of that town. In one of the newer Batman movies, there's a character who utters an interesting phrase. He says, I guess you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. But that implies a kind of inevitability. And corruption is not inevitable. Good and evil are a choice. There is always a choice. David had a choice too. It's not as if Goliath's sword was cursed and it made him do bad things. Actually, the seizing of the sword, I think, wasn't the real turning point at all. It happened just before that. I think, I think it was Saul's attempt to kill David that really changed him. David summoned uh, to play in Saul's chambers, to play the lyre as he had so many times before, was forever changed when a spear went flying past his head and embedded itself in the wall. David was no stranger to combat by this time, but this was different. This was a betrayal. This man who'd been his king, his father, really, since David left home as a boy, had turned on him. This was traumatic. It's the kind of trauma that changes a person. It can make you bitter and angry. In David's case, it also made him desperate. As he struggled to survive as a fugitive in the wilderness, he did things that he might not have otherwise done, things that he had to justify to himself, just as surely as the scriptures try to justify them to us. To some extent, I know what this is like. I know what it's like to feel betrayed, to feel hurt by the person you looked up to, to watch your heroes fall from their pedestal, to be tempted to bitterness, to lose yourself in it. But that's a story that I can't tell. The article that I mentioned earlier about the movie marathon, it was called, How I Learned to Love What Must End. The stories of these heroes were about to draw to a close. And the author writes about the change in atmosphere, what once felt like a birthday party when she first walked in the door, had become a wake, she says, a celebration of the end of an era. 
People were hugging one another, she writes, as they talked about their favorite scenes and stories and heroes. Perhaps it helps to remember every so often as we live our lives that our story must also end one day. And the lives we live, the journey we walk, will determine how that tale will one day be told, whether we'll be remembered as the hero or the villain. Your story might not matter to millions of people. It probably won't be optioned for a movie or be recorded in a scripture, but it still deserves to be told. If Joseph Campbell was right and heroes have a thousand faces, then one of them is yours. Well, maybe two. The good and the evil. Both of them equally possible. But you always have a choice. Even when it's not an easy one to make. Amen.